But closer to home here in Canada, we start with the breaking news at this hour. Canada's vaccine supply now expected to be reduced again. Canada will receive hundreds of thousands fewer doses of the Pfizer vaccine than previously anticipated. Uh, That news just being reported by Global News. The government had promised Canada would get 4 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine by the end of March. Sources uh, across the country telling Global News that's expected now to be only 3.5 million, affecting uh, some provinces more than others. And there's a technical briefing and update going on at this hour right now in Ottawa about that at this moment. So make sure you keep it locked here this morning for continuing uh, highlights and developments on that. But first, let's talk about the situation now with my guest, Patricia Treble. She is a writer for McLean's Magazine, the terrific Vax Populi series answering burning questions around these vaccines. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Patricia. Hi, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. I really like your work you've been doing for McLean's on, on the vaccine supply. What, do you, what do you, is your reaction to this breaking news here this hour about uh, another disruption in, in the vaccine, the Pfizer supply for Canada? That's troubling news. Yeah, I mean, so here, here's the thing. I mean, I think every, everyone who's been involved in this has said, like, you know, as much as the numbers, they try to lock in the numbers as much as possible, yeah. that there were going to be problems in supply. Like every expert that, you know, from the beginning right through to now has said, look, as these companies gear up on a massive scale, there are going to be problems. I mean, we're, you know, we're probably going to talk about AstraZeneca and the Europeans. Yeah. I mean, they've got problems with their supply. So this is not unexpected. And part of the issue is for Pfizer is a, it's a brand new vaccine. So it, this is an mRNA. So like Moderna, it's a brand new, um, basically a chassis for their vaccines. Um, so they were always going to have to expand their plants. And our vaccine comes from their plant in Belgium in a place called PERS, right. which is really apparently known for an incredibly strong beer. Anyways, that's, that's <laughs> um, they were always going to have to expand their plant. They pushed forward that expansion earlier it to, to now simply because they want to be able to get produce more vaccine for the whole rest of the year. So they were going to have to go take their plant down at some point. And for anyone who's ever had anyone who's, you know, worked in manufacturing, um, you, you know what's involved in, in, a, in a plant expansion is that you do actually have to take everything offline. And vaccine production is unlike anything else because very heavily regulated for obvious reasons, exacting quality controls. And you also have really complex um, chains of suppliers and everything like that. And so they are having to go from what were usually very steady yearly orders, a very kind of sleepy part of the pharmaceutical industry, to now ramping up to basically vaccinate as much of the world as they can in a year. So were there always going to be problems? Yes. Um, Is this unexpected? This is if the 500,000 dose cut comes, that's 12.5% cut yeah. in just the initial, this is the three months, right, for Pfizer. Right. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's a blow. That's 250,000 people who aren't going to get the vaccines, who aren't going to get the both doses. I mean, yep. 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 And, and at the beginning, every dose counts. That's why everyone's looking at this, like, on an incredibly micro level. But think about it. It was only a year ago when the first case was even reported in Canada. And we're already talking about va- hundreds of thousands, millions of, va- of vaccine doses coming into Canada. So there's, yes, there's concern about this. 
Um, there's a lot of politics involved in it. No. But I think in the end, um, everyone's going to, I think the overall goal is, you know, right. everyone will get it, get vaccinated by the end of the year. Absolutely, they're going to hit it. Do you think that Canada in any way in particular is being shortchanged here? Like, as you mentioned, there's there's a lot of politics going on here for sure. And, and we see a lot of heat on, on Justin Trudeau from the opposition saying, you know, did you guys did you guys bungle this? Or did you did you miss out on, on the contractual obligations here with with this company? Like, if you take a look at the, the Pfizer vaccine supply mm-hmm. uh, coming to Canada and then compare it to other countries in Europe, some yeah. people are saying, well, we seem to be getting kind of the short end of the stick here. Other countries not getting hurt hurt as badly in Europe. But your thoughts? Yeah, and so, I mean, I think that is definitely an issue because we can't actually, and, and this is not, I think, an issue just for Canada. It's that the mRNA vaccines are only made in a few plants in the world. So we, can, we don't have the ability to make this specific vaccine or the Moderna in Canada, even if we wanted to. We, we literally can't, we don't have the technology. Um, and, I, and I do think there is, there is a lot of politics, and it's international politics. So I mean, you had Europe putting enormous amount of pressure on Pfizer, on AstraZeneca, saying basically, we financed you guys to the tunes of billions and billions of dollars. Your plants are here, and we want our vaccine. Yeah. Um, and so, but I think what, what Canada has done and what they, they keep stressing is that we have deals with a whole bunch of vaccine producers. The issue right now is a bottleneck because in Canada, only Pfizer and Moderna are approved, remember. Um, In Europe, they're they're fighting with AstraZeneca because AstraZeneca just cut their deliveries by up to 60%. The AstraZeneca vaccine isn't even approved in Europe and they're already fighting over deliveries. What about... Um, so, what about these reports? Uh, what about these reports out of the European Union here, with, with Germany backing calls for uh, EU export restrictions on, on the vaccine? That's that's troubling, uh, troubling news for Canada. Is that possible that the European Union could restrict exports of the vaccine to Canada? Well, I mean, I think I think anything is possible. I wow. would I would I think there's what the politicians are saying, and then I think right now because they're facing enormous pressure, uh, Europe is far behind. Britain, when it comes to vaccinations, they've had, they've had problems with their rollout, as we have. Um, so they're facing enormous pressures from their people. But I think let's see what actually happens. I mean, there are a lot of you know, people kind of tossing around threats everywhere. But let's just wait to see what happens. But I think also, you know, we have a free trade agreement with, with, with the European Union. Right. Does that get involved in that? Um, I don't know. Um, there's also talk, I mean, when Trudeau was talking with uh, the new president, Joe Biden, they yep. were talking about maybe getting some of the Pfizer vaccines from their American facilities. Now, the first 100 million doses rolling off those lines are belong to the U.S. government for its own distribution. But what happens after that? Because those plants are ramping up. And at the same time, you've also got other um, vaccines under review by Health Canada. So the AstraZeneca one, the Janssen, Johnson & Johnson one, is under, they're under review. Right. And so I think once the number of vaccines increase, all those real impacts of the delays, like right now for Pfizer, yeah. they're going to lessen. But it's, we, it's now a race against time. 
Okay. Um, my, my guest is Patricia Treble, McLean's Magazine. Last uh, question for you, Patricia. Like when people listen to this stuff, they're concerned, they're worried, people want to get the vaccine. It's troubling to hear about continuing delays and more delays being revealed this morning. Like, in, in your opinion, uh, watching this stuff as it unfolds on the ground, like how concerned should Canadians be? Do you think this is just short term and, and things will be, uh, things will ramp up in a, in a month or so? Oh, this is absolutely short term. I yeah, mean, okay. they have, they are expecting, like I've been looking at like the, with the provincial roll-up plans. And so by the spring, like Ontario, for instance, is going to be doing more than a million doses a month. You know, I mean, it's going to ramp up on a, on a, a dramatic scale. The problem is right now, there are only so many doses in the world um, and everyone wants them. And so it's a question, if you're taking from one, if you're giving to one, you're taking from another. And that's with every province too. Once we get over this hump, once we get through this quarter, I think then things are going to be dramatically increased. I mean, even the Moderna stuff. I mean, we only get the Moderna shipments every three weeks, but even every three weeks, those shipments are growing. Like they're they're growing by about like 60,000, 50,000 doses every time. And then they're going to keep starting ramping up. Um, It's, I think it's a lot of short-term pain. It's a lot of anxiety, for everyone, but I think eventually we're going to get through it. Patricia, thanks for coming on today. You're welcome. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's now talk about the rich and the powerful and the well-connected and how they're trying to jump the queue to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Lots of people trying to get their hands on the COVID shot. Some will go to great lengths to try and get the vaccine, including, of course, the now notorious Rod and Ekaterina Baker, who have drawn worldwide condemnation after allegedly flying to that remote community in the Yukon to get their dose of the vaccine. This one, I wrote about this in a column for Global News, which I encourage you to check out. Follow me on Twitter. You'll find it there. I just, you know, how they figured they might try to get away with this thing. This is not exactly the Italian job, the perfect heist. How they thought they could waltz into a remote Yukon village of 100 people and demand this vaccine meant for indigenous elders without sticking out like the proverbial sore thumbs is beyond me. But it's going to be interesting to see what happens in that case. Uh, They were fined, of course. They were written up with the ticket, but lots of people calling for more severe penalty. We'll talk more about that. But let's talk now about uh, around the rest of the world and how the global elite, the rich and powerful, are trying to get the vaccine. I've got a great guest on this for you, Ollie Williams. He is a, a, a freelance reporter on Global Wealth with Forbes magazine. He's based in London, England. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hey, Ollie. Hi. Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for doing this. And you wrote a fascinating article for Forbes on this issue, which I've tweeted out to our to our listeners. I encourage people to check it out. Can you tell me a little bit about this? Like, is there is there any kind of development of a black market or a kind of an underground market for the vaccine with the rich and powerful trying to get their hands on it? Sure. Well, I, I mean, obviously, this this article looks at wealthy people trying to get their hands on a vaccine, which is which is what exactly what they're trying to do i mean you think about these rich people they they're used to getting everything they want um they want to be vaccinated against covid19 and they will go to any lengths to do that now it gets a bit tricky because i've spoken to many of the vaccine providers and at the moment it's very hard to get your hands on a vaccine no matter how much money you have and i've spoken to various people doctors or clinics 
and they have their clients ringing them up and they are throwing money. They're trying desperately to get um, to get their hands on the vaccine and they're saying money's not an issue, just give me a vaccine. And the clinics and the doctors are saying we can't because AstraZeneca or Pfizer are not giving the vaccines to, to private clinics right now. So right. you kind of had the standoff. And could there be a private black market, as you say? Well, it wouldn't surprise me if there is one. And there's been stories about different clinics in, in Dubai which are offering vaccines to, to wealthy people. Um, and uh, and I think what you also have is is um, vaccine tourism, where people will travel to try and get their, their hands on the vaccine. And obviously, you, you've been talking about this extraordinary case in the Yukon. People yeah. are, will go to great lengths to, to get their hands on it. And I think that's what we're seeing now. No, it's really amazing. You're based in London in the United Kingdom. And of course, the national health there is, is responsible for distribution of the vaccine. But I know that e- even in London with public health care like we have here in Canada, there are like private health clinic, healthcare clinics of people who are wealthy. They can go and get private care, right? Are, are you hearing from any kind of private uh, health clinics or sort of high level concierge health services that rich and well connected people trying to get the vaccine in the United Kingdom? So th- this is I've been speaking to these a lot of these private clinics supplying the, the rich people for and they are um, supplying and they, they do not have the vaccine because as you say the vaccine's been rolled out nationally they cannot get their hands on this vaccine. Um, what's really interesting is a lot of these rich people who are living in London or, or elsewhere in the UK they've only ever had this service they've only ever signed up to these high end concierge medical facilities these medical practices what that means is that they've never actually registered on our national health service the nhs and so of course they do not get a vaccine if they're not registered on the nhs so um you have this weird situation where people who've had privileged healthcare all their lives they've had exactly what they've needed they've had the best doctors the best treatment but right now they can't get a vaccine because they haven't even bothered to register with the NHS, and so therefore they won't get it. And so this is what's driving a lot of this panic. So you have people who who are in the category, and in the UK we're vaccinating people 80 years and above, people who are in that category, but they can't get a vaccine because simply because they're not registered with the NHS. Right, right. And they're trying to to do this through through whatever means possible. Speaking of so, Ollie- so that's the situation yeah. right now. My guest is Ollie Williams. He's a senior contributor for Forbes magazine in London, England. You've written about uh, some controversies for people who got the vaccine early and some people criticizing whether some people got the shot early before uh, frontline healthcare workers, for example. Tell me about the former prime minister of Poland who, who got the vaccine and, and some of the controversy there. Yeah, sure. So so I led with the story, which was a few weeks ago, the pri- former prime minister of Poland who, who managed to get a vaccine despite being not a frontline worker. Now, Poland were then, and I think they still are, only vaccinating frontline workers or parents of newborn babies. And uh, and then this prime minister of Poland rocks up and, and gets the vaccine. And and then the worst thing is he, he puts it on Twitter. He says, look, everyone, I've been vaccinated. And, of course, this sparks fury in Poland among the Polish media. Uh, everyone's saying, well, look, you're not in the vulnerable category, you're not a frontline worker, how you've been vaccinated. And then it transpired that um, there was this medical institute in Poland which were vaccinating certain certain individuals in order to to try and promote um, Polish healthcare. 
and try and promote the vaccine. So um, that's, that was a story which blew up a couple of weeks ago. And, and of course, he, he announced he apologised and he said he would volunteer as a result of receiving an early vaccine and, and started backtracking massively. But we haven't seen the end of this. I think anybody who receives a vaccine uh, who's not in the vulnerable categories or not supposed to get one, they they will stand out and they, right. they will feel the full wrath of, of public public anger against them. Right. Forbes magazine has done a, a really good job on this story. And I was reading about you mentioned some of these private kind of luxury concierge services for the for the uber wealthy to get health care. And there's a company known as Knightsbridge Circle that was offering some of the the richest people in the world. Uh, like a vaccine tourism, like you mentioned, go to go to Dubai or maybe go to India, and you're able to get the COVID nineteen vaccine. Super expensive, but if you've got the money, I mean, people will pay. They'll they'll do it. Is there a concern that this could this could widen? We could see a bigger black market, or or like you said, vaccine tourism. Could that could that get bigger? So it's an interesting story. This this Knightsbridge Circle. I, I've um, tried to get in touch with them. They haven't returned my calls or emails. Um, uh, but they say what they say is they're offering the AstraZeneca vaccine in in Dubai. Now I've spoken right. to the the Serum Institute in India, which is supplying the vaccine to Dubai, and they say that they are not offering this vaccine to any private companies or individuals. Mm. Um, so quite how Knightsbridge Circle are managing to offer this service, I'm not quite sure. Um, my guess is that they're offering a vaccine which is not either AstraZeneca or, or the Pfizer vaccine. Um, I don't quite know what is happening with that. So there, there, is, um, there, there is an instance there where, where, where it doesn't kind of match up. But, uh, I mean, that's, that's regardless. I, having spoken to the vaccine providers, yeah. they predict that they will start selling the vaccine privately come March or April. Wow. So what that means is that there will then be a price you can buy a vaccine. The price, we don't know what that will be yet. Um, it will likely be much, much more than what governments are buying them for at the moment. But uh, but yes, you're right. I think when when clinics do stock this private vaccine, you will start seeing vaccine tourism. And, and Knightsbridge Circle say that they are doing uh they're, they're flying people out on private jets and putting them up in hotels to to wait between their various doses of the vaccine and that will probably come a reality there will there will be people flying all over the world and um suppliers making a, a handsome profit on on private jets and hotels i think that's that's all to come from march i think we'll start seeing that kind of service incredible we're watching it closely ollie thanks for coming on to talk about your work appreciate it Thank you so much. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the reality for students working online when they attend university. I got a son in university. I kind of watch him at his uh, portable uh, computer at home. No in-person classes, really missing out on kind of the university experience. This is his first year in university. I feel for him because he's got to learn everything on his laptop instead. So sort of missing out. But check this out now. Even though most kids are learning online classes at university now university tuition 
still going up. At the University of British Columbia, an email sent out to students. They are looking at a tuition hike. 2% would be the increase for most students here. They've got a consultation process launched on this now. 2%. That would be the expected tuition fee increase at UBC. What Really? You're going to put tuition up when kids are learning online? They're getting less service, but it's going to cost more? Really? A lot of students not very happy about that now. Let's talk to one of them now. Julia Burnham, a UBC grad student in the Department of Educational Studies. Very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Julia. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. When you first heard about this proposed uh, tuition fee hike at UBC, what went through your mind? Honestly, it's the same issue every year. And I'm I mean, online school in a pandemic certainly doesn't help it when people can't see the value of these experiences. But every single year, graduate students in particular are being squeezed when their tuition rises and their stipends and scholarships intended to cover their tuition and living expenses do not. It's the same story every single year in the thousands. Students are providing this feedback, sharing personal stories of financial distress, housing insecurity, food insecurity, and poverty. And the Board of Governors continues to ignore this feedback and approves the changes regardless. Yeah, I mean, does that seem unfair to you to be hit with a a fee hike, a tuition hike at the same time? You, You could argue that the service you're receiving from the university has been reduced. All the classes are online, nothing is in person. So you're not getting as much service or value from the university for your education, and yet they want to increase the tuition. Is that fair? I think that's a fair statement, but I think it's also important to note that faculty are also facing this squeeze. The real issue here is the administrative bloat and mismanagement that's also forcing faculty to work additional hours trying to earn their classes online, and they aren't getting the support. So if we're going to be increasing this tuition, we better be supporting the faculty to deliver this online, because right now we aren't seeing that. Yeah, okay, so this email went out from UBC to students, and right now I guess this is a proposed 2% tuition fee increase, and they are now consulting uh, with students. What do you think of that consultation process? I mean, do you think they're just going to ram it through anyway? This is what's happened every year. It's incredibly disingenuous to tell students this is a consultation when every single year, no matter what feedback we receive, no matter how many thousands of stories we hear from students, the university has shown that this consultation is only a formality to them and they will continue to pass it through regardless. If there were ever a year for the provincial appointees to join the faculty and student representatives on the Board of Governors in voting no, this is the year. Okay, we did ask for a representative of UBC to come on the show today, and they declined to come on. However, uh, they did send us a, a written statement. So UBC tells us in this statement that the reason they want a tuition hike is because of inflation. So they're facing increased costs due to inflation. They want to match tuition to other institutions, make it fair, and it's based simply on the budget. Uh, they also say that they need the money for COVID-19 priorities that the university is facing. And they also base it on student input from the student surveys and, and consultations. I kind of laughed at that one because I thought, really, you're, you're hiking you're hiking the tuition based on student input? Like, Do you know any students who are arguing for a tuition increase? Exactly. And it's the way that they frame those questions, too. They 
put them in a way uh, where students are being forced to say, well, you know, if you give me this, maybe that's okay. And then it, they'll interpret that as approving of the tuition increases itself. Um, but even like the other financial reasons, like last year, the tuition increased for domestic students 2%. Um, and the university had $7.9 million of incremental tuition revenue, which means that the university overcharged domestic students at $7.9 million, and they did not need to increase that tuition wow. that year. Um, so until they can show us that they really need this money, um, keeping in mind also that enrollment has increased this year, I don't buy it, and they really need to take a look at the mirror and yeah. see that their students are struggling. Right. Talking to Julia Burnham, she's a UBC grad student about the proposed 2% tuition fee increase at UBC. You mentioned that uh, some students are struggling. A lot of people are during this pandemic. What are you hearing from other, from other students? How, how are p- students struggling out there? I mean, students are quite um, struggling right now in order to pay all their fees. They're paying a lot of fees yeah. that they don't even need to access. The Board of Governors is also charging the athletics and recreation fee, which is about $230. Um, keeping in mind that hardly any students are on campus. And even if you're international abroad, you still have to charge this fee uh, to take care of the athletics programs and facilities at the university. Um, It's just showing that they really don't understand the distress that students are in. Housing insecurity, uh, food insecurity, we have these numbers, but these are serious issues at the university um, and certainly amplified within a pandemic. Yeah. What's it like to be studying at university in a kind of a virtual environment like so many kids are studying online? No in-person lectures or classes, a lot of stuff shut down. University campuses is kind of like a ghost town, I guess, in some ways. What's that been like, sort of taking your education totally online? I mean, I'm grateful to be able to share space online with the people in my program. I have some smaller seminars Um, And it's really great to still be able to learn in these circumstances. But I really wish uh, we we could be safely in person and learning together. And the Zoom fatigue and all of these discussion posts every week, uh, it's just a different experience than people would sign up for. And the motivation is pretty low. Yeah, I mean, I know that some students might look at this and think, I'm doing all my classes online. I'm not getting in-person lectures from my my, uh, professors. So I'm getting less value for my money. Maybe there should be a tuition fee refund or, or, or a decrease instead of going the other way with an increase. Your thoughts? Uh, I mean, I, I would push back on thinking of students as customers. Students are here to learn in the pursuit of higher education. Um, and thinking of faculty as sort of the uh, person delivering a service, it's really about the knowledge. Um, so I would push back against that. and think that we need to be supporting faculty and students uh, with this money to create the best learning environment for all of us. Um, Because we're there to learn, and we really need to be supporting the people who are doing the hard work this year to make that happen. But the administrative bloat is the issue. (laughs) Yeah. What would you say to people listening who were saying, well, okay, I'm listening to a UBC student who's not happy with with a tuition hike, welcome to the club like we're all facing rising costs people in in vancouver are looking at property tax increases they're getting walloped with increased parking permits i mean everybody everybody's looking at their fees going up and their cost pressures are going up so why should students be any different i mean i think that the issues that we have with tuition increases aren't any different this year it's um, a common thread where students are getting squeezed more and more 
graduate students are below the poverty line. Um, and the university is refusing to do anything, anything about this year and year after year. Um, so it's less about uh, the current circumstances of the pandemic and really yeah. thinking, listen, this has been a problem for decades. And if there were any year to stop this cycle, now would be the year where everyone is struggling even more. Yeah, what that, those uh, athletic fees you mentioned, can you just tell me a bit more about that? Like, I'm, I'm kind of surprised there's athletic fees being charged. I mean, aren't athletics yeah. pretty much shut down? Yeah, so uh, there's an athletics and recreation fee that the university charges for about $230, um, and they had postponed that in the turn one because everything was online, uh, and they have decided to continue to charge it in term two as everything remains online. $230 athletic fee when athletics are shut down, though, right? Yeah, it's... um, It doesn't make sense to many yeah. students, including myself, um, and quite quite a lot of us are quite upset about this. Um, all of these sort of mandatory fees that students would be experiencing if they were on campus, those really need to be the first to go uh, to be able to provide a little bit of relief to students. Okay, Julia, good for you on speaking, speaking out on it. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks, Mike.